First Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 13. First Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Word of God says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we have behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you'd speak to hearts, Lord. Give us the truth that we need to hear tonight, Lord. And I pray that you would stir us, instruct us, and make us more into the image of Christ. And we'll be sure to thank you, Lord. We love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take notice of the first and the last verses that we read in our text. Paul, in speaking to the church at Thessalonica and sort of reminiscing on the great work that God had done in that place, he makes two interesting statements that bookend our text. Verse number one, he says this, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. He begins to list some reasons for that, and in verse 13 he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now Paul says the entrance we had unto you was not in vain. He goes on to describe the word of God and the work of God amongst them as effectual, meaning effective. And we could maybe summarize what Paul is saying in reminiscing in this way, uh, by saying this, he's telling them, boy, what a great work God has done in you as a people. What a miraculous thing God has done in saving you and transforming and changing your life. He describes really the, the basic reason this happened in verse 13, because when they received the word of God, which they heard of Paul and his companions, they didn't receive it as the word of men, but they received it as in truth, the Word of God. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, does that mean everything a preacher says is the Word of God? No, not by a far stretch. But it is to say when the preacher is preaching the Word of God, we ought to receive it not as the Word of the preacher, but as the Word of God. 
In other words, when what's being said lines up with the truth of God's Word, then we shouldn't just relegate it to the realm of personal opinion and say, well, that's just you know what he thinks. Well, if there's Bible foundation for it, then we ought to give it the reverence that it deserves as being the very Word of God. And Paul says the reason that God did a work in your heart and life is because you believe the Word of God. You're saved and I'm saved tonight because somebody gave us the truth of the Gospel. We received it trusted it to be the Word of God, believed on it, and accepted Christ as our Savior, and our life was forever changed. And he describes this process in the uh, body of believers at Thessalonica. But what I find interesting, really, although we've said a word about the first and the last verses, what I really want to preach to you on tonight is all the verses in between. Because in describing this process to the church at Thessalonica, he first talks about how God gave them an entrance there. Then he talks about how they received the Word of God. But between those two verses, he describes what Paul and his companions, what they had done to make possible the work of God in that place. Let me say that uh, inasmuch as you and I seek to share the gospel with people, and then even after we've won them to Christ to see them grow in the Lord, uh, we need an entrance of God into people's lives. Uh, I, I believe that there'll never be an entrance till an entrance is sought. But I likewise believe that if we really want to see God work in someone's life, we've got to seek the Lord's help in ministering to them. It's not enough just to beat them with Bible. It's not enough just to throw facts at them. Uh, we got to have the Spirit of God on us. And somebody's going to say, well, preacher, He's in me. I know He's in you, but is He on you? Are you operating in the power and strength and leading of the Spirit of God? I'm just saying, if we're going to be effective, we're going to have to have the Lord's help in being effective. I want to look tonight, and I'll be honest, when I look at this passage, here's the question I ask myself. Why was their entrance so effective? What was it about the way that they won them to Christ and ministered there and labored there that made their time so fruitful in that place? Because, listen, we ought to go, but I want to go the right way. We ought to tell, but I want to tell the right way. We ought to serve, but I want to serve the right way. I don't just want to be doing something. I want to be doing the right thing. And I want my life and my time to be the best invested that it possibly can be. And that's going to be by following the Bible pattern uh, that is laid forth for us. Now, before I get into the message, let me just make a, a note, an observation. It wasn't even in my notes. I just jotted it down while I was meditating on the passage a moment ago. But let me just make this statement. It was an entrance and not an encounter. Let me say that again. It was an entrance and not an encounter. You know, part of the reason we struggle to be effective in people's lives is we want encounters. But God wants to give us an entrance. You say, what's the difference, preacher? Well, uh, when the mailman comes by and drops your mail off, that's an encounter. But when a friend comes by and you invite them in and they come in to spend time with you, that's an entrance. And what I mean is that as we minister and witness to people, It's good if all you've got time to do is put a track in their hand. Praise the Lord, put a track in their hand. But understand that the most effective work done in people's lives is long-term work as we seek to minister to them the truth of God in the gospel and then consequently in teaching them Christian living through the Word of God. Uh, If all we're expecting is encounters, then all we're going to get is encounters. 
But what we might find is that there's even people that we've encountered a million times before, but God seeks to give us an entrance into their life. You say, well, who would that be, preacher? Well, that'd be people that you work with. That'd be people that, that you live next to. That would be people that are family. People that already know you're a Christian, but God might open a door, and I trust He will open a door for you to more deeply and, and broadly share the Word of God in their lives. So, in other words, it's good if all we get is an encounter. Uh, then take the encounter. But Paul used the word entrance. He didn't just show up, throw a tent up, preach a message, go home. He labored there, ministered there, worked there, and it took time and it took energy and it took investment. But at the end of all that, there was something to show for it. There was something to show for it. So what was it that made this entrance so effective? Well, let's just walk through the text tonight. We'll say a few statements about it and then we'll close. Look at verse number 2. Paul says this. We'll start at verse 1. He says, Yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Let me say number one. If our entrance is going to be effective like Paul's was, we have to be steadfast like Paul was. Do you notice how Paul phrases that in verse 2? He says... Even after. He didn't say after that we had suffered before. He said even after we had suffered before. You know what that implies? That implies that it would have been reasonable to expect him to quit. But he didn't quit. He instead kept on going and ministering and laboring and sharing the gospel. Let me say that very often in our lives, part of the reason that we don't see fruit from our labors more often is we're not putting enough labor in, enough time in, enough effort in. Uh, we all live in the realm. And I listen, I don't care if you're, if you're 9 or 90. We all live and have lived through a generation of immediate gratification. And we expect to be, I mean, we're part of the microwave realm. And we expect just to be able to go up tell someone the truth of Christ and they're going to immediately get saved and immediately become a, a gold star Christian and immediately become everything they ought to be. But here is the ugly reality. Very often it will take many, many occasions of sharing the gospel with someone before they'll believe and then even after they believe, very often their path will be, just like yours was, fraught with many false starts, setbacks, and mistakes. Paul says, you know why it worked? Because we just kept going. We just kept going. Somebody asked, I can't remember even who it was. You know, as a pastor, you, you hear all these little anecdotal stories said about this person or that. Well, I'll tell you exactly who it was. It reminds me now, and it was one of our missionaries, uh, Brother Keith Shoemaker. Somebody asked Brother Keith one time. They said, how have you planted? I think right now he's at 17 churches that he's planted in Burkina Faso, uh, West Africa. And it might, even, it might be more. It might be more. He might have planted one today, knowing him. Who knows? But somebody asked him one time, said, how have you planted 17 churches in Burkina Faso? You know what he said? He said, I stayed. I stayed. He said, when other people left, Brother Ken, I stayed. And because I stayed and I kept laboring and I kept working and I didn't quit and I didn't give up, God has done a remarkable work. This is something you and I instinctively know, but we ought to embrace it more readily, that it's going to take time. Anything in life that is of value takes time. Anything worth working for takes time. Working and laboring for the souls of men is absolutely no different. Paul says we didn't quit. We just kept going. And he describes some of the events. He says, even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. Now, you and I know what happened at Philippi. The Holy Ghost tells us in the book of Acts. 
how that uh, that uh, Paul and, and Silas were taken and, and were thrown in prison and, and uh, were there when they sang at the midnight hour and gave praise to God and everything. God shook the jail. But listen, uh, the birth of the work of God at Philippi was uh, fraught with contention and with difficulty and opposition and persecution. And it would have been very easy for Paul to say, let's just get out of town and I'm done with this whole business. I'm going to wind up in jail or dead if I keep doing what I'm doing. Paul and his companions said, no, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep on going for the Lord. He goes on to say this, we were bold in our God. In other words, he didn't let the world system scare him or cower him. Can I tell you, we're going to have to, we're going to have to grow some backbone. We're coming into a time where it is no longer socially acceptable to say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Where you're going to feel pressure in your workplace, you're going to feel pressure in society, amongst friends, amongst family, and you say, no preacher, not my friends, not my family. Oh yes, your friends, your family, just like my friends, my family, doesn't matter who it is, we're going to be facing opposition. And that being the case, we might as well just go ahead and make our mind up. There's going to be times it's going to be uncomfortable to be a Christian in regards to our public life, but that's okay. There's nothing broken about that. Listen, that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's a part of the Christian experience. And Paul says we could have given up. We could have quit. We could have got quiet. But he said instead we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. Notice how he says the end of it. With much contention. There was fussing at Thessalonica just like there had been at Philippi. There was controversy at Thessalonica just like there had been at Philippi. But Paul says, you know why we got an entrance? Because we sought an entrance. And when we were given an entrance, we took that entrance. We continued to serve God. We didn't give up. We remained steadfast. A wise man once said the very first two letters of the word gospel spell go. And the reality is if you and I are going to see God do a work in people's lives, we have to be willing to be that vessel meet for the master's use that God can use to do a work in people's lives. There are a great many people that want to sponsor the work of God. But God's not looking for sponsors. He's looking for servants. There's a lot of people that want to spectate the word, uh, the, the work of God, but God's not looking for spectators. He's looking for servants. There's a lot of people that they, they want to structure and administrate the work of God. God's not looking for those. He's able to order things His way. He's looking for people to serve Him. Now, listen, I understand. We just come out of BBS. Your joints ain't even ache from the last time that you've been serving Him yet. You've not even, you're still applying muscle cream at night. So I'm not fussing at you, but I'm just saying if we're going to see the work of God in people's lives, we got to go. We got to tell. We got to witness. We got to labor. We can't quit. We can't give up. It requires our active involvement. Not only were they steadfast. Look at verse three. He says this: For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Isn't that interesting? What he says basically, we could summarize it in this way. He he said, "What we said, we lived. What we said, we lived." What we did was in keeping with our message. He says, not of uncleanness. We didn't use iniquitous or evil or compromising methods or means. And then he says, we maintained a consistency between our life and our lips, our testimony and our toil. He says, in other words, he goes on to say in verse 4, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. He says, we made sure that we were legitimate. We were the real deal when laboring amongst you. I'd say it this way. Not only were they steadfast, but they were sincere in witnessing. Uh, you know, listen, I understand we're living in a, in a day when the average IQ is plummeting. Uh, but the reality is people can generally smell out fakeness 
especially around the topic of what you believe in. You know why? Because they're so interested. The thing that makes people easy to deceive is their will to be deceived. But a lost person doesn't want to be deceived when they're talking to a Christian. They want to believe you're wrong and prove you're wrong. And if there's any area of your life that they can point to to say, what a phony, what a hypocrite this person is, you rest assured they're going to do. We want an entrance into people's lives. Number one, don't lie to them. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Uh, the other day, I was me and Leah, right, she read it, and, and I don't know how to read, but she read this news article and shared it with me uh, about these vaccine people going door to door, the, the, the teams, armies, whatever you want to call them, going door to door. And she was reading some of the guidance they gave. And uh, I, it looks like a door knocking ministry. I mean, identical to a door knocking ministry is what this thing looks like. You know, all the pointers you give people of knock and step back from the door, you know, give people their space and uh, keep a record of what's going on. I mean, it read exactly like Kyle's Anderson door knocking training. That's exactly what it read, read like. But one of the things it said in it, and I was struck by this because it's the same council that probably every independent Baptist pastor has been giving their people for 40 years, was if you don't know the answer to a question, don't lie and don't give a bad answer. Tell them, I'm going to go study it, consider it, think about it, and let's meet again together and I'll give you a better answer. You know why we give that advice to people? Uh, because people can smell out insincerity. And if you just recklessly throw about things, all you're doing is weakening your position in the eyes of the person you're trying to witness to. That's the reason the Biden administration don't want them doing it with vaccines. But I tell you this, as God's people, all the more so, we ought to endeavor to be sincere in our interactions with people. Uh, sincere. I got a lot more confidence in the gospel than I do in that vaccine. We ought to be a lot more sincere than the world can produce in uh, their system. So he, he said, you know, we, we told you the truth. We told you the truth. We The things that we said, the way that we preached, we didn't try to pull the wool over your eyes. We weren't living one way and saying something different. We weren't trying to give you patronizing, dumbed-down answers. When he says ignoring guile, that's what guile is. We weren't trying to give you patronizing, dumbed-down answers that we thought would satisfy you. We just spoke the truth of God to you. I fear that much of witnessing has been wrecked today by this endeavor to make the gospel culturally relevant. Uh, listen, the gospel does not need to be made culturally relevant. Uh, lost people need to be spiritually resurrected. And a gospel that is changed and twisted and watered down to sound like something the world has produced does not have the power or means to change people's lives. Just be sincere. Just tell them the truth. Just be honest with people. They were sincere. Look at verse number 5. He says this, Neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. And this could probably be said both about sincerity and about what I'm about to say. But he basically says, when we spoke to you, we didn't try to butter you up. We didn't try to exalt or boost your morale or your, your ego or your self-confidence. We just told you the truth. We told you the truth about who you were, where you was headed, and what could save you. And he said, in doing that, uh, we were not trying to get anything out of you. When he uses the term a cloak of covetousness, what he's saying is we didn't use the gospel as an opportunity to grift things from you. We, we, uh, we didn't come to your door seeking anything from you. We came to you because we love you and we care about you and we're interested in you. And he says this, God is witness. God knows, just like he said in verse number four, that God tries the hearts. We better be honest with people because God knows our heart. Even if we fool them, the God that we serve knows our heart. 
Uh, even if we, uh, listen, even if we're phony with them, God knows our hearts. And He says, you know, God is witness in the way that we labored. He says in verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. I'd say it this way, they were selfless in their entrance into the Thessalonians' life. When Paul uses the term, uh, might have been burdensome, what he's saying is this, that we had a scriptural right as apostles to demand that you support and maintain us. But he said, we chose because you were young Christians and because you're not economically settled yet. He said, instead, we chose not to do that. And I, listen, Paul himself is the man that said, might as well not the ox that tread without the corn. But he's making a point here. What he's saying is, it wasn't about us. We weren't doing this for our glory. We weren't doing it for our benefit. We were doing it to labor amongst you. This is part of the reason I, I, I've endeavored in my life to, to not get into, or how do I say this right, to not get into secular relationships with lost people. Now, listen, you go down and take a loan at the, at the bank, the mortgage officer might not be a, a saved man. And I'm not saying don't take out a mortgage. Uh, you, you go down and go to buy a car, chances are the guy uh, that is the salesman, he might not be a Christian, and, and that's okay. But what I mean to say is this, we need to make sure that it is never and never could be said of us that we use our status as a Christian to try to gain an upper hand financially or, or uh, fiscally in someone's life. Uh, in other words, he, he said this, we made sure that our relationship was about reaching you with the gospel, not about advancing us, not about puffing us up, not about exalting or elevating us. Uh, part of the reason that people are, are, are so cold to the truth of the gospel here in the West is because we've had generations of televangelists that were willing to lie to people and sell people all kinds of snake oil, sometimes literal, sometimes figurative. And people have seen that. And is that fair that that is associated with Bible Christianity? No, because that's not Bible Christianity. But it does tell us how averse people are to feeling as though they've been taken advantage of. If Paul had demanded of them that they support him, he would not have been taking advantage of him. He had biblical grounds to expect that. But he said, I chose instead to have a greater entrance into your life. They were selfless. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about exalting them, puffing them up. And listen, in your interactions with people, and I'm talking about, because we're not just talking about knocking on a door and handing a track. We're talking about an entrance into someone's life. Understand that whenever you go to win someone to Christ and you have ongoing interactions with them, you put yourself at a disadvantage. And that's okay. Because their soul is worth more than your pride. Their soul is worth more than your pocketbook. Their soul is worth more than your advancement. Whatever it is, you're putting yourself... Because there may come a time that they may seek to take advantage of you because of that. You say, preacher, what do I do in that occasion? Well, while I don't believe God calls any of us uh, to bankrupt ourselves or to uh, have sort of a um, self-destructive relationship with people, I will say this, when you're witnessing to and trying to reach a lost person, there may be times you have to look at it and say it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost. Even if it disadvantages me in this situation. Even if I might have grounds to say, you ought to treat me a certain way. Paul says, we could have said that. But instead, we made up our mind that your soul was more important. They were selfless. Look at verse number 7. He says this, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, 
but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. Not only were they selfless, but they were sacrificial in ministering to them. The language Paul uses is rich with imagery. He talks about a nurse cherishing, and it doesn't say children, it says her children. The notion here is of a nursing mother that will, from her own body, support and sustain and and protect a child. The term cherish there denotes the idea of giving warmth to another person. And the idea is that she literally shares her body, her health, her life, her warmth. She gives everything to that child so that it can grow and so that it can develop. And Paul says, that's what we did unto you spiritually. We viewed ourselves as giving a part. He uses the term, he says, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. He says, we literally poured our life into you. Has your flesh ever felt inconvenienced by someone you're trying to win to Christ? Or mine has. There's been times I've looked at the phone and thought, I just don't have time for that phone call. There's been times I've looked at it and I've said, I just, today ain't today. I can't deal with them today. But understand, if we're going to have that entrance that we need, there's going to be times. Listen, I, and I've watched, I've watched my wife with, with raising two children and, and nursing both of them. And it takes a toll. You mothers know that. It takes a physical toll to nurse a child and to nurture a child and to watch over a child. I, I've literally watched my wife operate on like what, not zero sleep, negative sleep. Somehow, she, she, I took some sleep from her somehow, negative sleep, and, and having to sort of operate in that zombie mode for months on end of just trying to function, trying to keep going, because she was the only one that could meet that child's needs in nursing them. And it is literally a part of her lives within those children. And whenever Paul talks about their ministering at Thessalonica, he says, that's how we were with you. Uh, I remember for the first time, and I don't remember the occasion, but I remember it's galvanized in my mind, the feeling. You remember the first time that it hurt you. You physically hurt when your child cried or got hurt. I mean, I, I, and it's hard to explain it. I mean, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's psychological or physiological or what it is, but I remember hearing my child cry and it hurting inside. I couldn't have pointed to you what part of my body was hurting. If I had to say something, it would have been my heart. It just it hurt me to hear it. Uh, my love for them was so knit to who they are. And I'm sure my wife's even more deeply than that. And that's who Paul points to. He says, that's how we were with you. There's going to be times that you're going to have to give of yourself, of your time, of your emotional capital in winning people to Jesus Christ. Because again, we're not talking about an encounter. We're talking about an entrance. They were sacrificial. Verse 9 says this, for you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preach unto you the gospel of God. When Paul uses the terminology chargeable here, I think, and you, you're welcome to disagree with me about this, I, I think he is saying we did not want it to be said by anyone that we had not done our part in trying to win you to Jesus Christ. He says, you remember how we worked. You remember how we labored. He says, night and day we labored because we didn't want anybody saying, you didn't do enough to reach me. It could be said that he's talking about laboring with his hands as he did at the church at Corinth. But I don't think so because he says in their labor, what they labored doing was preaching unto them the gospel of God. He's saying that we spent all of our time trying to reach you. Now I understand in your life, uh, and, and even mine to a certain degree in pastoring a church, that there are certain responsibilities 
that are administrative and clerical in nature and are not wholly focused and centered on just witnessing to a lost person. And certainly you have responsibilities in life. You have jobs you have to work and and duties you have to perform. And I'm not suggesting that your whole life is just going to be one long series of witnessing and door knocking. But I am saying this, that in our relationships in trying to reach somebody, we must be single-minded in our focus on them. That's what Paul says. He says, we didn't spend our time doing a bunch of other stuff. We spent our time trying to win you to Christ. And while I would say this, not always does our relationship with a lost person have to be one-dimensional in that respect. It doesn't mean that every time you talk to somebody you're trying to win to Christ, you can only ever be sharing the gospel with them and you can only ever be testifying to them and preaching at them. I'm not saying that has to be the nature of your relationship, but understand that for you in seeking an entrance in your life, the preeminent thing in that relationship should always be reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should be that what you're doing in their life, you're doing to the end of reaching them. That is your goal with them. Look at verse number 10 with me. He says this, "Ye are witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Not only were they steadfast, sincere, selfless, sacrificial, single-minded, but they were sanctified in the way that they live. He uses three descriptive adjectives. He says, holily, justly, and unblameably. In other words, he says, in the eyes of God, we were living right. In the eyes of the world, he says, justly, we were living right. And unblameably, in the eyes of the person that they were trying to reach, they were living right. And I would say this, that if the, if we've got those first two, then we've got that third one. Uh, the Bible, uh, Paul himself talked about in, in the uh, book of Philippians about praying that God would deliver them from uh, unreasonable men. Uh, he said, uh, you know, wicked and unreasonable men, for not all men have, have the faith. And I'm not saying, listen, one of the quickest ways to get lied about is to live for Christ. Uh, one of the quickest ways to get lied about is to tell the gospel. Uh, so I'm not saying that, uh, you know, there won't be times that in trying to reach people that people won't malign you and say things about you and lie about you. Of course they will. But Paul does not say nobody blamed us. He says we lived unblameably. Now, why could he say that? Well, because number one, he had lived holily. Holiness is an attribute of God. It is God's proprietary righteousness. And as such, if we're going to be holy we have to emulate, or I would maybe use this terminology, we have to embrace and it be engrafted in us through obedience to the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of God and righteousness of Christ in us. In other words, we become holy by listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit and following the truth of the Word of God. It's the reason that, that the Bible says, be ye holy for I am holy. He's saying you can be holy because I am holy. <laughs> and me in you will produce holiness. So Paul says this, we were living right before God. Then he uses the term justly. Now, when we think of the term justly, we think of something uh, that is appropriately handled or dealt with. The term just, if holiness deals with that which is internal, then the term just deals with that which is external. In fact, when the Bible talks about our status or station with God, it uses the term justified, and that reflects how God views us. He chooses to see us as positionally right with Him. And so when Paul uses the term justly, I think if he, he talks about holiness and he's saying inside between us and God, we knew we was living right. And when he says justly, he's saying not only that, but we made sure we lived in such a way that the world could not look at us and accuse us of living unrighteously. 
And you know what then that produces? If you're living right before God and if you're living right before the world, then you're living unblameably. That doesn't mean people won't lie about you and blame you. But it means that in the face of those things, you can say, my conscience is clear. I know I have lived right before God. And I would say this, there are times that people will choose to blame you falsely and malign you and lie about you and be deceptive. But at Thessalonica, they didn't. He says, we behaved ourselves among you that believe. It made a difference in their life. You know why they looked at it and they said, these guys live it. They live it. They don't just say it. They live it. And their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and of the pagan priests. There's something different about them and we can see it in their life. One of the most potent things. And, you know, it's funny how the devil has fostered this sort of false dichotomy between confrontational evangelism and lifestyle evangelism. And confrontational evangelism, that's telling somebody that they need to be saved, talking to them about their soul, asking them if they've been born again, what we would consider uh, traditional witnessing, right? Lifestyle evangelism is the, the notion that if you just live well enough in front of people, people are going to fall at your feet to get saved. I would say this, that for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And if your notion is, I can live any old way I want and still win people to Christ, you know what you're going to find? That might be true for some encounters, but you'll never get an entrance in people's lives. You might give a tract to somebody and they might get born again. You might be as wrong as with God as you could possibly be because the gospel has power. And God's not, listen, God's not, not waiting to certify their conversion based upon you being on, on, you know, a, a trial or a probation error. There's been times I'm sure people have got saved uh, under my preaching or under my witnessing when I wasn't where I needed to be with God. But I find that when I want an entrance in someone's life, it's going to require a consistent testimony. And so the devil said, well, is it one or is it the other? And I'd say this, uh, it's both. You're not going to win anybody to Christ just by living a certain way in front of them. You're going to have to tell them the gospel. Because it's not the testimony of your good works, it's the testimony of the gospel that saves them. But I would say this, if you're living right in front of them, it's going to go a long way to them listening to what you have to say when you go to share the gospel with them. Their entrance was so effective because people could see the realness of their life. Finally, and I'll mention this and be done, look at verse 11. Paul says, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. It's funny, that word, and, and really all of these sets of words in this text have a progression to it. And these are no different. He says we exhorted you. Now, in other words, that means to teach to you the truth of God. So what it means to exhort someone is to disclose to them the truth of the Word of God in a way that's applicable to their life. So once they got born again, they taught them what it means to be a Christian. Then those new converts, like every new convert, uh, becomes keenly aware of their inability to live up to that. They're intimidated by it. So he says, you know what we did? We comforted you. We reminded you of how God loves you and of how God will help you live this way and how that God has a plan for your life. And then once you had your nerve back, he said, we charged you. Now to charge someone means to stir them up, to encourage them, to give them to give them a directive instruction to, to tell them that they need to live a certain way. And he said, we did that just like a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you under his kingdom and glory. And I'm going to use this word here, but I'll explain it a little better. They were stable. And what I mean by that is they were in it for the long haul. They didn't say, 
Oh, you got saved? Good. Bye. Now somebody's going to say, you hypocrite preacher. What about camp? What about BBS? Yeah, those are encounters. Praise God for the encounters. I don't regret a minute of them. I'll rejoice seeing every one of them young people when they get to heaven. And it grieves me that many of them don't have an influence in their life because parents won't allow it. Kids oftentimes, they, uh, they don't have the discipline in their life for someone to be driving them to consistency. But remember, we're not talking about encounters. The fact that there are occasions like that, and you've known people and I've known people that that's been the case. There's been people come through the doors of Walridge, get born again, and that's the last time I saw them. And I have no reason to believe they didn't genuinely get born again. But they're just not a part of our life. And, and, and that grieves me just like it grieves you. Well, we're not talking about those encounters. We're talking about an entrance. In other words, the people that God gives you in your life that you're able to see through beyond just getting born again. And I would say this, that a parent's responsibility to a child does not end when they're born. Uh, it really begins in a larger way when they're born. And that's the illustration he gives. He says, as a father doth his children. Can I be honest with you? Uh, for most, and I don't know if men will admit to this or not, but I'll admit to it. I'll take the flack for it. Uh, for most fathers, it ain't real till you hold them in, their ar- in your arms. It's just not. It's just, you know, my wife has a big belly and there's that alien fist pushing out on the belly sometimes and, and, you know, I'm saving up because it's all going to be expensive. And for the mother, she's a mother from the moment that she feels that baby kick. But for a father, they're very often not really a father until they hold that child. And sometimes even beyond that, I mean, when they're first born, they're just basically a big pooping burrito, you know. But as they grow, as they develop, in other words, I would say this. If it was a mother with her children, it would begin a lot earlier. But the illustration that Paul gives is, is of a father. And for a father, his chief love, care, nurturing, admonition, relationship with that child doesn't begin and, and end before that child's born. It begins when that child is born. And I would say that in your life and mine, if we want an entrance in people's lives, that doesn't end once they get born again. It begins at that point. In other words, we've got to see that entrance through beyond that. I think if we embrace those things, I think not only will God give us that entrance. What's an entrance? It's an open door. God will open the door for us to go through. But then even beyond that, we can see that entrance be effective in the lives of people. We ought to all be striving for God to use us in that way. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. And I want to give you an opportunity to come and to ask God to give you opportunities. To ask God to give you an opportunity, maybe with a specific person in your life that you're burdened for. Maybe with someone that God has placed in your path and you can see more clearly now that God's giving you an opportunity. Or maybe there's not a person. But you'd say, you know, I'm asking you, Lord, that you would give me someone that I can have an entrance into their life. Maybe you just want to pray and say, Lord, whatever that entrance is, help me to be more effective. Do my part in reaching them for the long term with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify your son. We ask it in his name.